Well, good morning, everybody. We've been talking about the last several Sundays about being sifted. And we've talked about the purpose of sifting. We've talked about the process of sifting. Last week, we looked at baptism as a picture of sifting. And as we conclude this series, I want to talk about the power of sifting. Uh, One of the definitions on the video was refined and cultivated seed for increased fruitfulness and multiplication. Wow, that sounds super complex, so let's pray with so I can figure out what that means. Dear God, no, Uh, truly God, we come to you this morning uh, acknowledging that you're bigger than we are and that sometimes it's hard to figure you out, and we ask for your forgiveness, and when we just try to figure you out, we know you're not a God who can be explained or controlled, and yet you're a God who pursues, loves, and works on us for your overall purposes in the world to create a new heaven and a new earth. I pray that today your words would speak to us, your stories and your testimonies that come forth would speak to us, individuals and as a community, about what you mean by refined and cultivated seed for increased fruitfulness and multiplication. Amen. Uh, If you're younger... If you're more on, if you got one of those busy bags, I would love to see an amazing tree. So could you guys draw some trees for me or a single tree? I'd love to see that later. So if you want to start working on it now, if it's in color, that's great. If you're like, I'm more of a one color man or woman, young man, that's fine too. So you guys go ahead, you see what you want to do and, uh, and I'll ask for those in a little bit. So, cause, uh, I planted a tree in my backyard Oh, and if you need paper, there in the back. I planted a tree in my backyard. It was kind of an accident. I thought it was a weed. Uh, I tried to chop it down a few times, and it kept growing. And it was, about, it was about eight inches tall when I found it. It looked a little bit like that. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool, because it was about the time I figured out it was a tree at the time that we were starting this whole church plant journey. So I'm like, oh, that would be so cool. We could have a tree we could have a restoration tree, and it's in my backyard. So, uh, it, and, then, and then the winter came, and Minnesota winters, if you haven't experienced one here, they're pretty much death uh, in every sense of the word. Uh, just frigid, and the stick came back, and I'm like, oh, it didn't make it. And then one little bud and two little buds came out, and then two leaves came out, and then it looked a little bit better than that. And, and then uh, it made it. So I transplanted it over to a better spot in my yard. And now this is what it looks like. It's about six feet tall now. It has about 22 branches on it and about 100, maybe 150 leaves. I don't know. I, I didn't count actually the leaves. I did maybe count the branches. But anyway, uh, and I look at that tree and I think, that's our tree. Yes, I like the tree. And I do. I, I kind of think of the tree as I think about our church. It helps me slow down a little, because if you know me, you know that's sometimes challenging for me. Uh, And if you were very early on in the process of the church planting journey with me, uh, you might have heard me say, "Uh, I'd like you to come on a journey with me. I'd like you to just think of this as a local mission trip that's kind of every day, every week, and it never ends. Uh, Come! But I do. I think about it as a local mission trip. And so it's good for me to have a marker to see our progress, if you will. 
And, and if we just stop and think about our progress, I mean, two years ago, we didn't really have a place to meet. Now we do. We're here. We like it. Uh, we have a school that we have found that we really enjoy being a part of. They've invited us to invest in them, and they've even helped us, and that's great at Westview. We have local mission and outreach work with food and education, which has been phenomenal. And this fall, we're starting this mobile pantry deal with Egan Resource Center, uh, which is great. And we're in the final stages of our office ministry center that the mobile pantry will get to be at. Um, we'll get to have some offices at. My wife can't tell you how thankful she is to have me out of the basement. Um, and my, the, the staff I get to work with, too, they're like, yeah, because it's a little weird to come over to your basement. So it's really fun, right, Lucas? It's really fun to have a place to meet. And we uh, kicked off this 10 by, cha- 10 by 20 challenge, $10,000 in 20 days by September 9th. We're well over halfway there. We have just over $4,000 to get to the rest of the way to have it all done, paid for, no, no extra debt. It's so cool. And then we have a ministry presence every, every day of the week. And we have a really cool spiritual coffee shop next door. Um, Jesus is coming for her. She just doesn't know it yet. And, and then we have a bar next door, so that's pretty cool. Um, so plenty of opportunities. We have lots of fun conversations about that, but for another day. And it's good for me to look back at the tree. And remember, the tree is only about that thick. And it's good for me to remember that the tree is less than two years old. And our church is less than two years old. And so sometimes I just need to relax. And sometimes I need to not think about the tree and not count the branches and not count the leaves. Uh, And I have to remember that we're still figuring things out, that we still need people to help us with it, and God still continues to work and grow us. Because it's not really about what I'm seeing above the ground. It's really about these things that are below the ground. These things I often forget about, like the soil and the seed. Now, I grew up uh, in the Red River Valley, which is the richest, darkest topsoil in the world. Okay, maybe top three. But it is in the top three for places. You could grow anything in that soil if it wasn't for the winters that are even worse than here. And... And here, our soil is not so great. It's actually pretty awful. And I found this new product. It's called humus. It's not to be confused with hummus. Hummus is great to eat. We had some down at uh, Biblios, a new restaurant over in Burnsville. Uh, But humus, you do not want to eat humus. You want to eat things that grow in humus, but you do not want to eat humus because humus is decaying leaves and vegetation and animal waste. Okay? And kids, we know what animal waste is, right? Yeah. Do you want to tell us? Poop. That's right. That's right. That's right. But there's some amazing organic products that happen in the decomposition of animal waste and leaves that decompose. And what happens is it's not really fertilizer and it's not really soil, but it's this amazing, amazingly rich product that holds nutrients and releases that over time. And it's essential for the growth of anything from the ground. Now, that's the soil. And then there's the seed. Because that tree started from a seed. 
And that seed broke open and went down in the ground and then up out of the ground. Not sure how you're coming on your trees. Looks like we have some artists that are taking their time, so we'll check in with you in a few minutes. But here's what one scholar, how he translates this idea of the seed. This is from John 12. I'm going to read out of the message. John 12, 24 says, Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over in the same way. Anyone who holds on to this life as it is destroys that life. But if you let go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. I have to realize that my tree is never going to grow without a little decomposition. Which, if you're taking notes, that's a fancy word for death. The death of the seed produces life. The death of living things produce the fertility of the soil to produce life. And I think that's a principle of this world. That the death of one thing gives life to another. Think about it in terms of God's people. If you are an Old Testament scholar or if you just love really uh, long, arduous books like Leviticus, uh, Leviticus, the first seven chapters, give all the different types of offerings that you could do, the grain offering and the soil offering and the sin offering and the thanks offering. So I'm just going to read one of those, uh, Leviticus 4, 27. It says, if any, of the, if any member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands... When they realize their guilt and the sin they have committed becomes known, they must bring as their offering for sin they've committed a female goat without defect. They are to lay their hand on the head of the sin offering, the goat, and slaughter it in that place in the burnt offering. Then the priest is to take some of the blood with his finger, dip it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering. They shall remove all the fat, just as all the fat was removed from the fellowship offering. The priest shall burn that on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In the same way, the priest will make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. So in this sacrificial system that's very complex, what the writer is trying to tell us is the death of one thing gives life to another. I think the same would be true in some other areas of life. It's true of organ donations. Jason told in his baptism story of a co-worker that needed a kidney. She was going to die if she didn't have a transplant or two. He hears this from a few cubicles over and says, well, I have two kidneys. I only need one. I will give one away. Uh, a friend of mine uh, has a six-year-old daughter, a few, few weeks older than Luke, my child, one of my children, and uh, she is on her second transplant, and I have been following their story as they've been praying, and they're like, the first one got us through kindergarten and got her to walk and eat by herself. And now we need one for grade school. And this guy showed up, and they can't let mom and dad do it. Uh, for some reason, they just, I don't, I'm not exactly sure why, but some guy showed up. They took pictures of him in his recovery bed. His six kids came around this little girl, and I'm like, that's the death of one thing that gives life to another. Jason certainly didn't die. He's sitting right in front of me, but he did have to recover. There was a little part of him that had to leave his body. We'll probably just stop it there. Um, 
and he had to adjust to life with one kidney. The death of one thing gives life to another. And we say that as, as Christians, right? If you believe in this Christian faith, you might even say Jesus died to give us life, right? But I wonder how much we really, really buy that, okay? Because we read books like, you can have your best life now. And we lift up victorious athletes. And it's even better if they say, God bless, or I did it for God. We like, yeah. We follow the popular and the beautiful and the strong. In fact, I think we discard those things that are broken and dead. And we actually have incentive for that because we don't fix things anymore. It's cheaper to just replace them. I watched a guy, uh, or I I didn't watch, I heard a friend of mine watch uh, a truck bring in these 46-inch plasma televisions, hundreds of them, to the dump. And he's like, can I just just take one off the top? I'll give you money for it. We don't have to let anyone know. He's a pastor. Um, and, uh, And they're like, no, we have a contract in this X company. Make sure that all of these get destroyed so the new models, so people will buy the new models waste. I mean, we discard the broken and the dead. And I think we ridicule people and teams that lose. The Vikings. And um, I've been a fan since 86, and I've been disappointed ever since. Uh, But we do. We ridicule people and teams that lose. We don't buy this death of one thing gives life to another. We despise the weak. And when we see things that we don't like in ourselves, many of us don't just feel guilty about that. We just heap on the shame. I don't think we really buy this death of one thing gives life to another. Because how many of us in relationships, if we've had a disagreement with someone, how many of us find it hard to admit that we've done the wrong? And at work, when we have a project with someone, how difficult is it for us to share the glory? How difficult is it for us to pass the praise? Or are we just so insistent that others know that we did at least our fair share, if not more? And in social settings, how many of us exaggerate the story to make ourselves look a little bit better? No, I don't necessarily think we buy this death of one thing gives life to another. And this isn't about being American. I think this is about being human. And somewhere along the line, I think it's somewhere in childhood, we learn that the path to glory is about winning and comparing and impressing and achieving. And when things don't go our way or when we don't win or we don't achieve the goal or we don't get the job or we don't get the girl or we don't get the guy or when we suffer, we wonder how God could let us go through that. So kids, how are you coming on those trees? Anybody got a tree to show me? You can just walk up. Oh, we got one. Maya, come on up. Show me your tree. Anybody else? I'll I'll take your tree. 
Ooh. Okay, wait. Is this our... Oh, wait. Is it this side? Okay. This side. Willow tree. Love it. That's great. What kind of tree is this, Eli? Apple tree. Any Oh, apples haven't budded yet. No problem, buddy. Yeah? Anybody else? Ooh. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. Autumn is coming. Right? 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 Okay. What else we got? Ooh, do you want to explain that? Okay. And this one? What? These are the only colors. You have to... That's right. This, that's pretty good with just two colors. Mm-hmm. Ooh, this apple tree has bloomed. This is an apple tree, right? This apple tree has bloomed. Mm-hmm. Love it. How tall is that tree? That looks tall. Like 75 feet tall? Yeah? That is a beautiful tree. I wonder how that tree stood up, stands up. And I wonder how this tree stands up. And I wonder how this tree stands up, or this tree. We see the base got a little bit bigger, so maybe that tree would stand up, or this tree. Or this tree, even though it's definitely got a wide base. See, these trees have to come from, they have to emerge. They have to fight against gravity. I mean, when you think about the, just the science of a tree and it coming out of the ground and going somewards up time, uh, sometimes upwards of 300 feet in the air, these giant redwood trees in California, I have to marvel, because I was kind of an engineer, I have to marvel at how they can stand up. And it's because their root system is so complex but their roots have to fight and their roots have to dig and their roots have to do the work. Their roots are the thing that suffers and the roots are not something that we spend much time on. Here's some conversations I had this week uh, with a guy who said, um, I don't get why, why my life is this hard. Like, I'm successful in business. Uh, I own my own house. Uh, but I haven't found this the the right girl like god knows i want this i just don't want to tell everyone because i don't want to be that sensitive a guy but i do i want to be married and i i i don't get why i don't have that and i i i don't get why god doesn't want me to have the desires of my heart i know i don't expect him to be a genie in a bottle but if he loves me wouldn't he want that or the story of a lady who had a job offer, and, and this job offer was, looked like it was going to have this kind of string attached to it that was a really good string, something that she wanted, something that would, um, like, waiting and achieving and hoping for. And, and she had to make that decision for this job without that. They had to be two separate decisions. So she made that jump and said yes and then interviewed for that second piece and got the no and wondered, wait a second. Like, all systems seem to go here. Why would that happen? And I've heard it so many different ways and so many different stories that can be summed up as, I don't understand why God would take me through that 
Life isn't supposed to be that hard. And I would encapsulate that with this idea of sifting. Why do we go through these hard things? How do we go through these hard things? What's it for? We've talked about the purpose and the picture and the power or the process. But let's talk about the power. And we find it in the scriptures. We find it through the story of the gospels. So if you're a a gospel writer, if you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to be in Mark for a few minutes. And every writer has an agenda. I haven't met a writer that does not have an agenda, because if you don't have an agenda, why would you write anything? So Mark, from the gospel, has an agenda too. We're going to be in Mark 8. And Mark wants these people to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the mighty Messiah. He's the Son of God. But he's not coming in the way that they would expect. And so he paints a picture that everybody gets it wrong, especially those closest to him. In fact, the only one that gets it right in his whole story is a Roman soldier after he dies on the cross at the very end of the book. Nobody else gets it right. He wants to show this picture. He wants to paint this picture. And he starts it in Matthew or in Mark 8:31. This is when, uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, I did uh, one of my first-person narratives. I was Peter, and I talked about how it was my best day as Peter, how I was the one who identified Jesus as the Messiah. And he said, blessed are you, Peter. This didn't come from you. Actually, that's what Matthew writes. Mark doesn't leave, Mark leaves that part out. Mark doesn't leave out the fact, though, that when Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah everybody expects because I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter rebukes him. He says, no, no, you're not going to do that. Why? Because the Jews, they had this idea that this is what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to be God's agent of salvation. Like, think Blues Brothers. We are on a mission from God. Suits and everything. Think Men in Black. Suits and everything. And probably giant alien weapons. Um, Think about Superman coming to rescue the earth. This is God's agent of salvation. He's not necessarily, or she, is not necessarily divine. They would have pictures of the judges. Matthew, Mark, I mean, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. All these people who came when there were people battling and God's people were like in a corner, in a hole with no way out and then God sent a judge who was a deliverer who rescued them. And then they had peace until they did bad stuff again. And then they were oppressed again. Then they cried out to God and then he sent a rescuer, a deliverer, like a mini Messiah. That's their picture of Messiah. God's agent of salvation, not necessarily divine, to bring them out of freedom, to liberate them from their oppressive nations, and to rebuild the temple, because this wasn't just political, this was also kind of spiritual and so and religious, and so this agent of salvation would free them, liberate them from the oppressed nation, and then would rebuild the temple and then establish God's justice or God's righteousness for the nation. And David, King David, was a great prototype, an example of what this person would be. Because he came in and there was peace in the land as he was the king. And he made plans to build the temple. And he established God's justice 
and righteousness. So they said, you know, someone who's going to come, who's going to be this rescuer, who's going to be this agent of salvation, he would be in the line of David. He would be the one to do this, or she, I guess they could say, would be the one to do this. And so when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to suffer and die, the disciples say, no, no. And Peter says, absolutely not. They don't get it. He rebukes Peter. Next chapter, because Mark likes to work in threes. So he says it once in 831. He says it again, uh, just ironically, in 931. So we can easily remember that. He says again, I'm the Messiah, and guess what? I'm going to suffer and die. He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, but after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask. So again, he's redefining this role of being the Messiah, not a Messiah who conquers, but a Messiah who suffers. And again, they don't get it. Instead, they argue about who's going to be the greatest. Just think about that. Okay, so if he's Messiah, he's going to set up a kingdom. And in the kingdom, there's going to be these two seats of power. This is what happened in first century world. This is like the ancient way they set up stuff. There's one on the left and one on the right. And these two seats of power, these people were the second in command. They were like the only person over them was this king. And they knew that whoever was the greatest would have a chance for one of these two seats. So as Jesus talks about being the Messiah, this ascension to power triggers in their head, and they start arguing on the road. As Jesus talks about suffering and dying, they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest because one of them wants the seats of power. Do you see how this isn't going? Do you see how the death of one thing gives life to another? No way. The disciples didn't buy it, and I don't think we buy it either because we think we have to fight for our right. That's a party. Fight for our right to get what we need. And so again, they argue about it, and Jesus says, like, you've missed it. You've missed it. Anyone who wants to be first must be, kids, you got this one? Anyone who wants to be first should be last. That's right. That's right. You guys get it. I don't know why we don't get it. We grow up and explain it away. And then again, in chapter 10, in the, in the verses in the 30, so it's again easy to remember for us. Isn't that convenient? This time Jesus says, no, now we're on the way to Jerusalem. Now we're not just talking about it in theory. No, now we're on the way to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, guess what? We are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, Jesus' identification for himself, will be delivered into the chief priests and the teacher of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. And they don't get it again. So what do they do when they talk about the flogging and the spitting and the killing? No, now James and John, who were like two of the three of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, three of two of these 12 disciples, either those two or probably more likely their mom, depending on which writer you read about, what do they do? They walk up to Jesus and say, okay, so uh, you're, gonna, you're the Messiah, right? So those two seats of power, um, can you have one of my sons be on this side and one of my sons be on this side? They're not getting it again. And what happens? They all get into an argument. You know why? I talked about this before, I think. 
because they didn't think of it first. The other disciples are ticked off because they're like, oh, that was a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? They want the power, even in the midst of Jesus saying, we suffer and die. Because see, we, like, we wash the story, especially if we've read it before. Especially if we know what's going to happen to Jesus. We kind of like, kind of whitewash the story. We go, oh, Jesus is the Messiah, and everything's going to be okay, and he's going to rise from the dead. And we have to remember that that is not what these people are thinking. They're thinking he is going to conquer. He is going to deliver. He's going to rebuild the temple and deliver them from the oppressive nations and establish God's justice. And guess what? He doesn't do any of those things in their eyes. He goes to the oppressive nation and he gets condemned by them. He doesn't rebuild the temple, he gets crucified. And he doesn't establish God's temple, he ends, or God's justice, he ends up in a grave. Everyone in that time would think this. We bet on the wrong guy. We bet on the wrong team. It's like being a Vikings fan. And I'm a Vikings fan, and so I'm not trashing them. But I'm just saying, like, it happened again. Because in Jesus' time, there were hundreds of people who claimed to be the Messiah. And so they would just say, darn, I bet again. And yet they didn't. They didn't because Jesus rose from the grave, and that changed everything, and it validated this idea that, oh wait, he did conquer the oppressive nation, but it wasn't Rome, it was our sin. And he did rebuild the temple, except it wasn't that brick building, it was us. It was our temple. And he didn't establish justice in this way, he established a new kingdom and a new righteousness. And that kingdom is one that starts now and will go on for eternity. And that's what changed these disciples. And after the argument, what does Jesus say in Mark 10? He says, no, not so with you. The Messiah isn't going to conquer, and you're not going to conquer if you're Messiah's followers. The Gentile leaders, they want to conquer. They want to be great, except not so with you. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant Whoever wants to be his first must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because the death of one thing really does bring new life to another. And these disciples, after they saw Jesus raised from the dead, it changed their life. That's why when, when Jason says, I'm fine, I can still play hockey. This lady gets to live. Life is good. That's because the principle is true. Jesus is the one who verified this principle. Jesus is the one who said that seed has to die to sprout the life, to have the roots go down deep, and to see that happen. And we have to learn that too. And God loves us so much that he breaks us down or allows us to be broken down just like that humus. And here's a tangible example of it. Um, I've gone through it many times over because I'm a slow learner. I think some of you have gone through it and you could get up and share your stories if you are extemporaneous and love to speak in front of people. 
Um, but we thought ahead of time. And Leah said, oh my gosh, that's my story. And so we're going to hear Leah's story of power through humility and death to life. My whole life I have been a people pleaser and this past year of my life that has really affected my faith and my life in ways that I never anticipated. I had just graduated from seminary and I was ready, um, set to move to a new town with a full-time job lined up and everything was looking uphill and everything was going great. As my job continued on, um, things just kind of began a downward slide, you could say. Um, I was really trying to live and do things as my boss wanted, and I wanted him to be proud of me and to be encouraging in the work that I was doing. I began um, becoming really depressed and it was hard to get out of bed every morning. I would anticipate going into work and being criticized and critiqued for everything that I had been doing um, wrong. And my life just kind of started falling apart. I didn't really know who I was anymore or, or um, who God was in my life. Finally, months later after dealing with this, I left that, that position and it was good for a while um, and I realized some of the things that had still been affecting me. It was still hard for me to get out of bed every morning and one day I just sat down um, with my Bible and realized that I needed to go to passages that God has used so often in my life, First um, Corinthians 12.9 and in it Christ says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And I thought to myself how much of an idiot I have been for thinking that I needed to work to please um, a person. The work that I was doing wasn't because of what God had called me to do, it was because of what my boss was wanting me to do. And I had lost passion for what I was doing. And the passage goes on, and Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that Christ may dwell in me. And I am content with weakness and insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I just sat in that, and I realized that I needed to be humbled, and that the silence that God had in my life was him waiting for me to recognize that I needed to go to him, not as someone who had my life all together and everything together, but in my weakness. And it was in that moment that I recognized that it's not about what people say about me or what people say I am, but it's about who God thinks I am and, and how much he loves me. And it is in that weakness that he is able to use me now and in what I'm doing here at Restoration and in other areas of my life. And I'm so thankful for the grace that God has and has allowed me to be strong 
because of him. My whole I want to share a, a song with you guys that has been a great prayer for me and a good reminder of who God says I am. And the words will be up on the screen. Feel free to, to sing along. The chorus is really simple. Um, stand, stay seated, whatever you feel comfortable doing. a place where where you think of yourself as the sinner like the song said not the saint are you at a place where you don't hear that you're God's because maybe you're at a place where your life is in pieces and as we were singing the last few parts of that like and he says I'm his own and I'm alive I, I got this picture, and it's going to sound kind of silly, but I'm going to go with it because maybe it was from God, and if it's not, then sorry. Um, of my kids, they love Legos, and, uh, and they, get, they get sets. They don't just buy the pieces. They buy the kits, and they put them together, and they play with them for a long time, and then they usually break them. Uh, and, and when they're broken and in a billion pieces they still know which pieces go to which set and they still kind of go, no, these are mine and these are mine. And sometimes it's the color and sometimes it's just because they know the pieces so well. And if your life is in pieces, God still says you're still mine. All of these things, they're mine. Like in a, in a father way to child way, in a I'll accept you no matter where you're at, way, not in a possessive or masochistic. We don't say that you go through suffering because God loves suffering. No, we don't find joy in the suffering. We find joy. Peter learned it through his life and his denial, and then he learned it through his betrayal, and then he learned it through his reinstitution, and then we find out when he gets older and wiser, he actually writes to people who are going through suffering. And in 1 Peter 4.1, he says, like, look, suffering, it, Christ suffered physical pain, so guess what? We're going to suffer physical pain. And yet we can find joy in the fact that Christ calls us to be a part of his suffering, just like he calls us to be part of his glory. And if your life feels like it's in pieces and your faith is shaken and you can't even say with certainty that you believe all this or that you buy all of it. Can I just tell you that we are determined to say that that's okay, that this is a safe place, not in a kumbaya sort of way, but in a, faith, in a way that you can honestly, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually ask those questions that no question is off limits, that, that we believe this God who says all of these pieces I'm going to use and rebuild and restore and fix the broken, we will honor that and we will be a place where weakness is not just acceptable, but celebrated. And so if it seems like your life is in pieces, 
and you don't see the fruit on the tree, and your picture is like the one who doesn't have any apples yet, and you don't see the new leaves, can I just give you hope that there are the roots that are going down, and God sees that? Because he's, he's the author of death of one thing gives life to another. He is the one who created this humus that refers to really, if we simply want to say it, is sifted soil. It takes the stuff that has reached the point of stability, meaning it can't break down any further. That is the stuff that has the most nutrients. That is the stuff that has the most potential. And that's the stuff that the creator of the universe put in each one of us, not in a like me-centered way, but in a God-centered way, in a God who says, ooh, I see that in you, and I see that in you, and I see the stuff that won't break down any further. It has reached the point of stability, and now it can be used. That's the power of sifting. That's the power of multiplication. That's the power of salvation. Friends, that is the picture that God wants for us. That that death is really life. That as we sing a song that says, I'm alive, we realize that there are pieces that have to die in us to get to the point of stability. Is it any wonder that humus is from the same word as humility and even humiliation? and humble. And it gives the picture of the word that is someone who is close to the ground. Someone who has a proper assessment of themselves and a proper assessment of who God is. And in that place of humility, Proverbs 18 and Proverbs and the whole Bible says, humility precedes honor. God isn't going to lift us up, friends, as a community or as individuals until he's the one who is seen because he's the one who has the power. And if that takes us down to this point of suffering, to the point of feeling like we're going through trials, well, First Peter says, friends, don't be surprised by that, but be glad because while we share in his sufferings, we also share in his glory. And he's the one who says that suffering not conquest, is the way that a Jesus follower will be because that's the way that he went. So as we close today, we're going to sing another song, but the band is going to just give you some time and create some space to reflect because I don't think we do that very often. We're just going to take a few minutes. We're not going to try and conjure up anything. Uh, we have pens and pencils in the back, or um, paper, and we want to give you a couple minutes to reflect on what God might be doing in your life, where the pieces might be in your life, where there might be chains in your life that God really wants to break and that you know he really wants to break. So what are those dead pieces? What are those pieces that need to go so you can reach that point of stability and humility and honor because if we die to ourselves, God promises Jesus promises that there we will find life and we can give that to God and what is that in your life is it a hope or a dream is it a son or a daughter or a mom or a dad or a marriage or a friendship an achievement 
or a future thing. God, meet us as we pray together. That's what God wants. He wants us to be holy his, all of us, and he will allow us and pull us and take us in all the pieces to break us down to the point of stability, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. May you know today that as you give your life to God, holy his, that he takes that life and produces many new things. What is the picture? What is the thing that God is telling you, that the Spirit of God is saying to you, that is that seed, that is that thing that has to die so that you can live? If you're not sure or if you need help discerning that, we have a prayer space that we'd love you to talk to someone in our prayer team about. We want to see lives changed, not for our glory, God wants to see your life change not because he has anything that he doesn't like about you, but because he loves you. So may you be the humus to give fertility and life to others. And have a great Sunday.